0: Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck, back for another podcast for The Knockdown. Thanks for tuning in. I am joined in my immediate right by my longtime friend, occasional co-writer, Michael Bamberger. Michael, thank you for tuning
1: in here. Haven't seen you in forever. (laughs) Alan and I are seeing each other so
0: much, we're choosing not to have meals together, even when the opportunity (laughs) presents itself. Well, it's worth noting that we've had hundreds of meals through the years, and most of the time... You don't answer a single question. You just deflect and you redirect the conversation to me. So it's a big deal for you to to open yourself up to a a taped conversation like this where you're going to have to say something. Why do you say that? It's a (laughs) vast personal experience. (laughs) Let's set the scene for the listeners here. It is Monday after Augusta. Mm -hmm. Um, We're still in our rental house. I think uh, I filed my game story to SI about seven hours ago. We're both heading for the airport, but still, still kind of buzzed from what was a, a great Masters. Uh, Monday mornings always a great
1: feeling, isn't it? It's after the, you it, filed. It's the best. It's the best day of the week. I've, I've been wondering this morning, how, how are you so euphoric and absolutely no sleep? But I think we both know the answer.
0: What it's is the answer? The post-filing high. <laughs> <That is. laughs> PFH in the literature. The source of so many endorphins. Um, I actually was kind of moved by the whole Sergio thing. You know, we we've watched him get kicked around for two decades, uh, and you know Tiger loved to haze him. Pudrick Harrington did. The guy has been kicked around, essentially forgotten. And it's like, oh yeah, I I kind of like this guy. He, he's grown up, and uh, I I thought it was I thought it was a very emotional kind of win. What, what was your take?
1: I'm I'm totally with you, and I thought you captured that really well in the story. I mean, you highlighted. Uh, some of his petulance through the years, a lot of which I've forgotten about. And, uh, but there was always a likability about the guy, even in, even in his surliness and his, and his moodiness. Uh, but he's a thoroughbred and, and an artist, and uh, that comes with the territory. But he's been a joy to watch since he's 19, and so we've been watching him really our whole, not our whole careers, but a lot of our careers. And uh, uh, yes, I totally uh, I t- shared that
0: feeling, and I think you really capture that in your story very well. Uh, I appreciate that. It's one of my favorite parts of your biography that you, you caddied on the European tour back when Sevi was still Sevi, And of course that, uh, he was, he was Sergio's mentor and an idol. Tell me your best Sevi story from, from those days.
1: Uh, Seve, uh, at Mallorca or one of the tournaments, I caddied on the European tour in 1991 and, um, and Seve was, uh, he was gone probably already, already then. He was beyond the height of his powers, but he came back really in a really significant way after a little bit of a lull um, in maybe 89, 90. And, uh, and he won a tournament uh, uh, bouncing a ball out of a, a lake with a concrete bottom, uh, and it just caught the right thing. But Seve being Seve was like, that was all part of his magic, you know. He was faking the whole thing. And and the water and, was so
0: shallow the ball
1: Exactly. The water was so shallow it was able to bounce out of the cement pond <laughs> and onto the green and enabled him to win. And uh, I actually thought of it funny that you bring it up because I thought of it yesterday because Obviously, Sergio had that putt to win on the seventy-second hole. If that wasn't a dead block, shove, push, I don't know what was. Yeah. Oh no, that's misery. It,
0: it, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It just didn't go in. It's like you didn't touch the hole from five feet. I know. Yeah, I mean that. That was the, everyone. I think kind of smiled at that. But that, you have to have that mentality. It's, Otherwise, you, you can't. You can't peg it in the
1: playoff, right? Right, right. And 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 that's that's the artist uh, mentality. Uh, what was it like for you writing the game story, knowing that people have such conflicting feelings about about Sergio? Do, do, do you do you go at it as a reporter, or do you go at it as more? This is my own emotional response to the win, and let's see how it plays out for the reader.
0: I almost felt like an advocate, like. This is this is why we like Sergio, and you should, too. I kind of felt that, you know, as you're... You know how, yeah. like, Alfred Hitchcock used to always fall in love with his leading ladies. I mean, sometimes when you're writing about someone, you have to kind of be their sponsor in some ways. And yes. I, I kind of felt that with Sergio as um and i've noted through the years you know
1: you'll write a profile about somebody and then we're asked some sort of generic uh, platform <laughs> question and that person always rises to the occasion because now you have an emotional connection to that person
0: yeah oh yeah it's like who did who did i write about in the master's preview oh, yeah i'll pick yeah. them to win the masters right <laughs> there's right. a long history of that um but it was you know i got some time with the, the soon-to-be father-in-law who was was a great character and you know that's always a challenge is you know like everyone is is kind of has this angle about uh Sergio's new life and the happiness he's found with with this woman which is completely legit and he's obviously is, is has changed him in in some profound way. So then you got to you got to do something different than what anyone else is writing. They and Angela, she didn't speak much, but you know, I saw her around enough reporters. I knew I didn't want to I didn't want to use her voice too much. So I was happy to get to get the her dad who is this great old Texan who Claims his family showed up in 1834, and he said, we're real crazy Texans. And I said, is there any other kind? <laughs> I think after that, he kind of liked me. So, um, so You've I- always been very skillful at forging
1: very quick, meaningful relationships with uh, the parents and family and entourage of uh, contenders. Down the stretch. It's not easy. Like, they've got other things on their mind. And here comes the reporter from New York by way of California. And uh, But they open up to you. And what's, what's your technique for that, if technique's even the right word? Uh, how, yeah. How, how do you make that all happen?
0: I mean, a lot of it is you have to find him in the right physical space. So he had, um, you know, Marty Akins had walked the front nine. But he wasn't feeling great. So he was plopped in a chair in a... Um, there's that little alcove near the locker room where you can watch it on a big screen. And a lot of family members and, and other associates kind of gather there because it's so close to the locker room and it's kind of removed from the, the hubbub of, of the clubhouse. And I only recognized him because the day before I had, I had been out on the golf course and I saw him talking to Angela and I just made the connection. But he wasn't wearing a, you know, a lot of the players in the family have badges with their own names on them, but his was a It wasn't his name. It was just some generic, probably friend of the family of Mm -hmm. Sergio. And so, um, and he had his hat tugged real low. So it was kind of lucky I even spotted him, to be honest. And... Um, he actually, I felt like he wanted someone to share it with because he's watching Sergio come down the stretch. There's a big couch there, but he was at a, a chair kind of marooned in the corner. And so I, I just kind of kneeled down on one knee, so I was like at his eye level, and I just introduced myself, and I said, do you mind if I watch this with you? And he's like, no, sure, partner, you know, <laughs> come on down. And, um, and so in the beginning, you know, you, know, you just kind of um, just watch golf, make a few comments, you, oh, great shot, oh, you know. Tough putt, and and then the, the banter just kind of picked up, and then I, I, at some point I picked up my you know pull out my notebook and say, do you mind if I take a few notes? Just uh-huh. cause it could be a fine line when you're just chatting somebody right. up. Do they know it's on the record? Right. Uh, are um, are you just a, are you just some dude watching golf, or is this actually an interview? And he was, right. he was fine with that. I mean, the guy played big time college football. He's been around reporters enough, and so um, and then. You know, I always try to make it more conversational than an interview. Mm-hmm. I, I think you bombard them with too many questions it, that, that the shield comes up a little bit. So right. you're just talking about golf. You're talking about Texas. You're talking about whatever. And slip a few pointed questions in when you can. And uh, and it was great. I saw him on, on Sunday. Under That was on Saturday when I did the bulk of the interview. And then I saw him on Sunday. He was walking out with Angela. or under the trees like, hey, Alan, how you doing, partner? And, and it was great. I mean, I'm surprised he remembered my name. And... Um, and then Angela kind of like, oh, okay, so you're cool with my dad. Then maybe I'll give you something later. And, and I circled back to her at a, at a different moment and that was kind of helpful too. Cause, um, you know, as the story, I, I kind of lead um, behind the, the 18th green and Matt Kuchar and his sons are right there and I'm chit chatting with them a little bit. And then Angela came up cause that's kind of a friends and family zone where, where they, they'll, they'll take the, the, the loved ones of the players and, um, so then she was a little more comfortable than me, just based on that interaction, you know, four and a half hours earlier with her dad. And so, um, it, it's, it's you know, that's that's a funny thing. Being a writer is such a lonely job; you're just sitting in a room typing. But being a reporter is intensely interpersonal, and you have to connect with people, and you have to be able to ingratiate yourself, as you say, sometimes on the fly. And so that that was kind of a lucky break that whole thing.
1: And the things that you're talking about, it, it's not possible to teach them. You just have to go out there and do it. And and you have the knack for it. You've always had a great knack. I remember Jim Harry, our former boss, used to say this of uh, of Rick Rowley. He had a great bedside manner. And uh, you know people, always, of course, associate that phrase with physicians. But a writer needs a bedside manner, too. And yours is uh, always an exemplary. And I think also you've had the ability to uh, cultivate these relationships on the golf course, sometimes during a major championship, and then go back to those same people when writing a uh, a profile of them. So let's say in this instance, you know. Uh, this would be interesting to you and me. I don't know if it's going to be interesting to the, the listenership, but uh, let's say you want to write up Sergio and you went through his, his agency and they're like, eh, he's too busy. Well, we don't take no for an answer. That's part of what makes an SI writer an SI writer. We're going to get the story one way or the other, but now you can go to the father-in-law. You can go to the girlfriend, the their fiance. You have other, other ways
0: in that's you've, I'm sure you've found that useful over the years, haven't you? Well, exactly. I mean, and this is all in the story but you know Ray's teaching Sergio how to shoot a 3030 and they've got a compound bow and they're going to go out hunting elk. Mm-hmm. I mean is that a great feature story or yeah. what? So rather than get turned down by his agent who's going to be overwhelmed, I'll just go to Ray and say, "Hey, when are you going to be hosted Sergio? Would you mind if, if I if I mosey on up there and um so yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, there's sort of a bonding that takes place especially for guys when it's their first major championship win, it means so much to the family. The emotions are so heightened. And that connection you make can can be powerful. And mm-hmm. as as you say, a lot of the features that I've done have come out of the reporting during major championship weeks. And even, you know, I have a notebook full of Justin Rose material that I didn't use. I spent a lot of time Ricky Fowler's dad. I've got, I've got a ton of stuff on Ricky I might need down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, a half dozen other players you're kind of chasing, and so that. You know, sometimes the wrong guy wins. In this case, I think everyone was was rooting for Sergio, but uh, there's four other you know names on the leaderboard that I'm I'm in better shape for the future. So uh, it's always all all the all of the all the hustling pays off. No, I wanted to ask you about you wrote a very charming story for for Golf.com about Tom Watson, and it was unexpected. You know, he's not even playing in the Masters right. tournament, right? And that that is kind of. I think the thing that I admire about you and I think the readers appreciate is you're always looking for a, a counterintuitive story and, and not doing the obvious what's wrong with Jordan Spieth or whatever everyone else is chasing. So tell me how that story came Well, I be. appreciate
1: that very much. And I would say even more than in quote well, looking is just like, I like to just stumble onto things. So I like being at golf tournaments and, uh, I like walking around and talking to people and then just seeing, uh, Anything that's just sort of uh, falls your way that could be interesting. In this instance, uh, I just happened to be walking by the driving range on uh, Friday afternoon in a pretty cold wind, and there was one player on the uh, driving range, and as you just noted, he wasn't even in the field. And it was Tom Watson, and he's hitting beautiful. I mean, the man is 67 years old, and he's hitting one spectacular shot after another. And uh, and and later, when I when I talked to him, I said, you know, how did the um, How did that session go? He said, oh, really, not very good. I hit like one or two good shots. I said, really? It looks so good. I mean, you're hitting those three irons, hitting draws and fades and highs and shots and low shots. He said, it looks so good. And Watson said, that's because you're a chop. (laughs) (laughs) And then I sent him the piece because I figured he'd never see it. So I sent him the piece by email. And he wrote back and said, Michael, don't you have better things to do than write about (laughs) has-beens? Fortunately, my editors are not saying the same thing, uh, or maybe they aren't. I'm not hearing about it, but in any event, it's nice to be able to mix it up, and it's great that you're writing up John Rahm, and, and, and I've enjoyed writing up uh, some of these phenomenal uh, uh, young players, uh, and new people are always bursting on the scene. Like it, was, it seems like yesterday, but it was six, seven, eight years ago that Brent Snedeker sort of burst on the scene here at Augusta National, now he's a, a, a proven veteran. But it's nice that we have the time and the space, and especially with the internet, we can uh, to just sort of... Uh, poke around in different areas, too. Everyone knows the Tom Watson story. There's not a piece of information you actually need about Tom Watson the story. But um, it's neat to see this
0: guy uh, still at it at 67. He He's a really... Uh, he's a contrarian, and he's he's blunt, which I like about him, but he's not an easy guy to write about, and I, I know you've done so throughout the years. What is your, What has your long-term relationship been like with him?
1: Yeah, he's not easy to write about but he's even harder. I think he can be a very difficult person to have a a conversation with because uh, he'll say things like, that's wrong. Like uh, at one point, uh, we were talking about politics, which is a mistake to get into any kind of political conversation oh, yeah. uh, with, with Tom Watson because one, you're going to lose because he's got all the facts. Yeah. You know, or he thinks he does. They call him Karnak, too. Or Karnak, I'm not sure what his nickname is. used to be Karnak, I think. Uh, uh, but one of his things, you know, he was, uh, he's, you know, he's uh, very much a conservative Republican. And he was talking about uh, Obama. And his lack of experience, I said, uh, yeah, it's amazing became the president after uh, after being a two-term senator. He says, Two-term senator, two-term senator, middle of his first term. It's like all right, Tom, I made a mistake, but you know. But that's why Tom's Tom, you know, because he's super direct. He's got the facts and he's got the courage of his convictions. And um, he's been a great figure in golf uh, because he is who he is. He's not trying to, you know, and uh, I mean, he made that Ryder Cup that you covered uh, in Scotland. He made that Ryder Cup. Oh. That's a very
0: boring Ryder Cup. It was, <laughs> it was spectacular. Awesome. It was, I mean, how uncomfortable was that to be in that room that day? Uh, that's one of my favorite stories I've ever done, because as you say, it was just kind of Another U.S. loss. Another U.S. loss. No, nothing memorable happened. And I had, I had detected a little rumbling about Watson, but everyone was, was kind of towing the line. And, you know, I talked to some wives, and they said, yeah, it's, it's been fine, you know, it's a little different. And, but, you know, at the Ryder Cup, there's, there's no access to the players. They're playing from dawn to dusk. They're herded off to the team room. It's really hard to get them. Um, a couple of caddies had had made a few cracks about the pairings but we could all see those were kind of bungled but mm-hmm. had no idea that mutiny was coming and i almost didn't attend the press conference because i was i just wanted to write my story and nothing those press conferences are always so awkward yeah and then it, it, but i went and, it, and all the all the bile came out and then it was just basically 16 hours straight of reporting um you know i got i got a couple of of the us team members i interviewed them by text you know they were like in a team setting they couldn't talk but they're texting me um i talking to more people around the team usa the support staff the vice captains this whole picture started to merge but you know the clock is ticking to write this story i file the story and then i'm at the airport the next day and not the players you know they, they fly home on um some chartered plane, but the caddies and everybody else, they were going essentially commercial and there they are at the airport. And so uh, I, I interviewed a, a caddy who shall remain nameless who later said, I was still drunk. I don't even remember that, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like <laughs> 10 in the morning. And so then I, I, I was tweaking, I tweaked the story while I'm in the air on my little puddle jumper. And then I, I refile it from Heathrow. Um, and it was, you know it was a story that kept evolving uh-huh. and uh and so yeah that was that was interesting yeah and- it was a great story because uh you captured the
1: moment in an emotional way and you also conveyed the facts through reporting and uh i think that blend of things is part of what makes sports illustrated sports illustrated and you, know, you remember this campaign from probably the late 80s uh where they would show like a baseball on the chalk line it was a sports illustrated uh, ad Sports, I believe this was the cut line, Sports Illustrated, get the feeling. Is that what, is that, mm-hmm. what that phrase was? And, uh, and I think that you've done that uh, extraordinarily well over the years. And that is a particular one because there was a feeling in that room. You were there and you conveyed it. I feel like I was in that room having read what you wrote. And, but then it's one thing to have the feeling and then it's one thing to have the facts behind it. Why did they dislike Watson so much? You know, why was there so much pressure uh, and tension and uh, because you've got so many sources with so many caddies and players and wives and others who shall remain nameless, uh, <laughs> that you're able to tell us really something. And I think really what that story did, there, were, there was other excellent reporting too. Bob Harrick at ESPN had uh, reported the story beautifully. And there were others as well. But I think one of the things you do with that story was really set the agenda. Because when that went public, the way it went public, and our coverage was definitely a part of it, it was like the PG of America had no choice but to really evaluate just what the heck they were doing with this Ryder Cup. It's one thing that they were losing, but it was the other thing when you've got a mutiny going on. So that was a very significant story and probably had a role in creating of this task force, which can be mocked or if you care to mock it. I, I don't mock it. I think they were, they were smart. They were reassessing and, uh, and, and led to this um, the reinvention of what it means to be an American Ryder Cupper.
0: That's an underrated story. A handful of reporters won the Ryder Cup for the U.S. this time around.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they, I'm
0: kind of kidding, Well, not entirely. (laughs) No, I mean, well, they put it back in the hands of the players, which was smart. No, it's yeah, it's true. Um, That it's funny because we were just talking about this at our our pre-taping breakfast. You know, you have a press room full of hundreds of reporters, and it's not just at Augusta where they've created this palace slash mausoleum, but at, at every event, and how how few guys actually aggressively chase the story. And it, the story comes to you so easily now with the, with the transcripts and um, and all, all, all these other ways that they've made life easy for reporters. But it, it does seem to, I think you and I both, we, we love clean writing. But not everyone can be F. Scott Fitzgerald, but if you can just get your own material that's interesting and unique, that can carry an entire story.
1: Yeah, I mean, you and I, uh, and I I think this is true of every writer on our staff, we'd be bored out of our minds if we were writing the same thing that everybody else was writing. Um, Sadly, there are fewer and fewer people out there writing in the first place. But, uh, you know, that's what we get paid to do, is, is find a story, find a take uh uh that's that's uniquely uh, our own um you know and there's there's an old uh, phrase of you know if 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 you 've got the story i re- i'm not doing it justice, but if you've got the story reported, just write the reporting it's going to be good enough it doesn't need all sorts of fancy bells and whistles you know sometimes there's a time where you sort of impose bells and whistles on the writing, but uh I think we all do but uh but most of the time great reporting will 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 carry the will carry the day i mean the scene that you have with uh, Sean Foley, Justin Rose's teacher, in your game story about Sergio Garcia. He seems like an insular character in the whole thing. He's the loser's teacher. And he ha- uh, but the fact is, he's an insightful guy. He's watched Sergio for years. He's got a feel for the whole thing. And that one quote from Sean Foley elevates that story. And I know the reader doesn't read it the way that we're talking about it. Right. They just get that magazine and enjoy it. But what we're doing here is sort of analyzing... Why it's enjoyable on a level that the reader doesn't even really have to know about, but it's fun for you and I to
0: to, to visit it yeah, but I think you're right that the the readers may not be tuned into the nuances, but i it's like Justice Potter and pornography I mean they know a good story when they see it, yeah, and maybe they, they don't even know why it's good, but um, i think I think quality in this day and age stands out even more because there's such a a a Emphasis on speed, and whatever happens, we have got to get it up quick. We have to have a take, and and then once once you do that, you don't have to go any deeper. And so, uh, and you know, we, you and I both have had to a- adjust our writing lives to the pace of of writing for for the internet. Um, but when when you can step back and do something that's a little more insightful and a little more thoughtful, I think I think that's more valued than it's ever been. Now I want to ask you something, Alan, about something where I
1: know we differ as writers. Uh, I get a word count from the editor. If they say write 1450, I write 1449. But you, <laughs> but you being much more of an artist, are just oh, I'll write what I feel like writing, and they can do what they want with it. Uh, are you still
0: doing that? And how's that going for you? <laughs> well, it depends. So if if we're doing like our master's preview, you know, big standalone issue for SI Golf Plus, and it'd say 60 pages, and I have a feature. Wouldn't that, that be nice? When, yeah, in the old days it was. Now maybe it's 44 or whatever. Um, if if I'm what I try and do is be the first one to file, because at that point the magazine is it's just they've sort of allotted pages to stories, but it's not fixed. And so I feel like every story has a natural length. You sit down, you write it, and it, it may be 1,800 words, it may be 3,000, it may be more. You just don't know. But the story is done when the story's done. Now, if, you, if you're the first one to file, they'll say, okay, we like this. We were only gonna give it five pages, now we'll give it eight. And um, so in, in that regard, I just kinda, I, I kinda let the story tell me how long it wants to be. Now, for, for like this, this master's game story that's going in, in the Weekly Sports Illustrated, the, the, which closes in a matter of hours, I mean, that, that issue's already pretty much in place. They, it has, we have five pages for the masters gamer and that's it. And so, and they asked for 2000 words. I gave them maybe 2100 and you can usually wiggle in a few extras, but if I write 4,000, it's still only going to run at 2100. They're just not going to tear up the magazine this late in the process. So you have to pick your spots. Um, and a lot of it is dependent on, on the, the, the deadline of the piece and, and and what else is happening. But I will say that, if you, if they like the story and you give them enough time, they'll usually accommodate it. So that's, that's my general philosophy. But, um, I remember when, when Phil won in 2004 and it's one of the all time great masters and I was writing that, that game story. And I think I filed 5,000 words and, you know, it's still, I was thinking it's Phil Mickelson. It's the masters. I mean, just drop some meaningless baseball story and give me four extra pages. Like I really felt like I could make the case. And, uh, I think, I think about 2000 words got shaved no. off of that. No. <laughs> I mean, it still ran as a, as a big package and they blew it out, but that was a little overly ambitious. So that, that drove home the lesson that, uh, your editors can only do so much. And, even though we think it's the biggest thing in the world, they have to, especially when you're writing for for the Weekly Sports Illustrated. There's a, so much competition for every page. You, you have to pick your spots a little more judiciously. Uh,
1: Steve, Steve Russian, along those lines, gave me great advice of when I joined the magazine in 1995 or six, eight, five, I think. And um, and it was, it, and he said the following: If they ask for two thousand words, take off ten percent and give them that. I said, Why is that, Steve? He said. Because they're gonna fill ten, they, they're gonna add ten percent of their stuff to it anyhow. <laughs> so if you're ten percent short, then they're not cutting your stuff; they're just
0: adding their stuff. Uh, I've never done that, but I, I thought that was good, good advice. Well, and of course it's changed because in the mid to late nineties, the the weekly SI was a hundred and twenty pages. I mean, it was heavy. Right. It was so thick, and you know now we're getting sixty four, sixty eight pages. I mean, it's literally about half the size of what it was back in our. In our heyday, and uh, so uh, it's it's discouraging, but at this at the same time, I, there is still a commitment to running long, ambitious pieces. Very much so. You just have to. Uh, you have to. Really fight to get them in the magazine
1: well, or or not I mean I think very wisely our bosses uh, have recognized that that's one of the reasons people still read the print magazine is they want to actually read something, and uh, um, you don't know this, but I've, I've known your strategy of filing early to get the pages for years, but uh, I'm inept at following it, but this year I shipknucked you and'm uh, surely <laughs> I'm Shirley Hammock Shirley Hammock is a eighty uh, eight year old man. Uh, whose father was the first core superintendent at Augusta National. And, I mean, I could hear the collective yawn when I suggested to our editor, Mark Godich, that I write about this guy. (laughs) He's like, wouldn't you rather write John Robb? But uh, anyway, I know I thought this guy would be interesting, but anyway, I knew there was no institutional interest uh, or in-house interest uh, in this guy, except once I saw the guy and talked to him, I knew he was a really good story. I figured, and that he would lend itself, you know, with there were photographs of his childhood with cows on the August National Course during World War Two. Letters from things. Bobby Joe, oh, yeah, a letter yeah. from Bobby Jones. So there was really some neat stuff. But anyway, I figured I better file this one early, so because <laughs> otherwise it'll be, you know, two pages. And uh, anyway, got a nice run from yeah, no, but that, uh, yeah. I
0: filed early, and that that and that made
1: all the difference.
0: No, it was a fabulous story, and thank you. It's an interesting thing because I don't think our editors and even the readers really know what they want until we give it to them. I mean, theoretically, we could fill every magazine or every section with just stories about Tiger, Phil, and Ricky, but that, then you're losing out on on introducing new topics, and and at some point, people get bored of, of the obvious stories. So Shirley was, was was not obvious, and maybe X percentage of readers – didn't even give it a chance, but those who read it got so much from it.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. I think uh, we, I think we've been lucky with the editors that we've had uh, uh, in golf and otherwise. But we worked for Jim Harry for years, and uh, and Mark Godich and uh, and others that 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 we've uh, written for as editors, who have been very trusting. Uh, and it's like, well, these guys are out in the field. If they've got a sense that the story uh, will resonate, um, I'm not going to doubt it. and and and, and they have never done with me, and I'm sure the same is true for you as well. Uh, it's like, well, what is the story? What is the story? What is the story? Well, we don't know what the story is. We've got to go out report it, write it up, and we'll we'll see what the story is. Um, and that takes a lot of faith and trust, but uh, we've been very fortunate having done this for you know a couple of decades each. Uh, we're in a position where that, that trust exists and uh,
0: lets us do our, our jobs the way we feel it should be done, and it seems to be working out all right. People always ask me, how, how much input you get about the stories ahead of time, you know, in the assignments. I say, very little. It's like, just give me 2, 2,500 words on John Rom, and that's it. There's no, there's no roadmap. Yeah. If, if the editors or, and I, you know, we call each other and bounce ideas off each other as well, sometimes and early in the process, but it's very rare to, um, to, for anyone to tell you what to write. I mean, it, it's liberating, but it's also scary because you just have to find the story.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I when I joined Sports Illustrator, going back even uh, before that, I mean, it had a reputation as being a editor's magazine. I think we had an editor, Peter Carey, for years, who said early on the the uh, early on the uh, there was a, a notion of you know the writer brings the bricks and we'll make the building, and that has not been true in uh, in our era uh, at all. And uh, I think we should note uh, how closely we sometimes work with photographers, and you especially have worked very closely with photographers. Uh, how has that uh, changed writing, improved your writing, and shaped your stories, working closely with photographers?
0: When I was an intern in 1994, um, and the U.S. Open was going back to Oakmont, um, our our friend and colleague, a frequent golf companion in the Lynx land, John Garrity, wrote this long, beautiful story about Johnny Miller reliving the 63, where he was in his life with his, his big family, and... It, it was, it was a, you know, it was probably a, a six or 7,000 word story that John spent months working on. It never ran. Oh, wow. Because Johnny Miller refused to, to sit for a photo with his family who were a big focus of the piece. And a lot of it, there was some miscommunication with kind of, he had this overzealous, um, secretary type who, it, it just became this whole mess and the managing editor, then Mark Mulvoy, who we both know and love. And, um, fear. He, yeah. he, he just got his panties in a twist and said, we're killing the story. You know, Basically, forget Johnny Miller, although there's a different verb that started with an uh, F. Uh-huh. And, um, and that was it. And poor John Garrity, who'd spent all this time on this amazing story and never saw the light of day. And so that impressed upon me very early on how important photos are. They, they can make or break a story. If we don't have good art, mm-hmm. the number of pages you get, the, the level of interest from, not only from the editors, but also from the readers, it, it's affected deeply. So I definitely try to make the, the photographers part of the process. And, and
1: you're often on the set when they, when the, you're on the scene, when they're taking photographs, aren't you?
0: I like to be, um, cause it, like for instance, you know, that John Rom story that was in the master's preview, his life was, go- had exploded. It was very hard to get any mm-hmm. time with him. I wound up having a nice long lunch, um, with, with him and Tim Mickelson, his, his manager. And then right after that, we we're going to do the photo shoot. And as you've been in a photo shoot, snow you there's a lot of dead time, whether right. they're changing lights or backgrounds or wardrobe. And so I always go to the photo shoot because you get essentially another hour or more of just time around your subject. And it can, you know, photo shoots can be awkward by their very nature. And you're you're, you're now a, a, a familiar face. And so mm-hmm. I kind of stand off on the side and we're, we're bantering and... Um, and I think John was happy to have me there because he didn't know the, the, mm-hmm. the anybody else in the room. Right. And he wasn't super comfortable being the center of attention like that and having to pose and t- stand this way and put your chin up. And and so every time there was a break in the action, we'd kind of banter a little bit. And I, I got some good stuff from that. So, mm-hmm. um, And and also, the, generally speaking, the people in the office don't know the story you're going to write. And at that point, all I'd done is the interview, but I hadn't actually written the story yet. Mm-hmm. And so you can help help the photographer get an image that's going to make sense that's right. going to amplify what you're doing and so yeah the the photo shoot is is an underrated part of the reporting process and it's certainly a, a vital part of of the bringing the whole package together um can i ask you about the continuum
1: of uh si uh golf riding and particularly in regards to the masters and i know that you're a student of this as 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 am i um in the in the fifties, late fifties. Uh, Herbert Warren wind, uh, was writing game stories. Dan Jenkins wrote memorable, memorable game stories, uh, from Augusta national, uh, uh through the sixties and the seventies. Uh, others wrote in the eighties. Um, Rick Riley started writing a lot of game stories, uh, dateline to Augusta national in the nineties. And then, and then since the mid two thousands, I would think, uh, you've been writing it on a consistent basis. How, how aware are you of your forebears and how have they influenced you and how do you, uh, how have they shaped you?
0: I mean, I always say like writing, writing golf for sports Illustrated is like playing, you know, center field for the Yankees. There's, there's a, a lineage there. There's a heritage, and um, you can't be held hostage by it. But it's, it's definitely the, the bar is very high, and I think that's, I think that 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 tradition is is a fantastic thing, is like a fantastic thing to be a part of, and. Um, you know, I've 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 read all those old gamers, and I'm sure they've influenced me in, in ways that are obvious and, and subtle. Um, you know, Jenkins, he might be the most influential sports writer ever, even outside of golf, just in general. You know, he had that they called it impersonal Texan. You know, was his voice? It was just mm-hmm. it was just casual and conversational, mm-hmm. and then there was an intimacy to how he talked about the players and, mm-hmm. and the people around them. Um, you know, as when I was starting out the magazine, you know, Riley was at the height of his powers. And, and the thing I learned from him, and when people think about Riley, it's, you know, he he had, uh, there was always a lot of funny one-liners and um, it, his stories are very stylistic. But the key to Riley was the reporting. Definitely. He... Um, he used, he, if he got a little nugget of information, he protected it like a precious jewel. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't even tell us what it was, mm-hmm. maybe grudgingly. He, did, he didn't want it to leak out in any way. And I learned from that, you know you have to get your own information and you have to guard it. It's harder now with, with the internet and with social media, there's this pressure to kind of use it or lose it in some ways because if, if you do some spectacular reporting on Thursday... Uh, someone else might luck into it and, and tweet it out on Friday and then it's gone forever. So you, I, I ask myself this question all the time. Should I burn this now in my mm-hmm. golf.com story or on social media, or should I try and save it for my, my magazine piece when it could be really impactful? And mm-hmm. I, sometimes I save it and sometimes I use it. And I don't know which one is the right answer to this day, but um, so, you know, the, the, those, both of those, you know, Jenkins and Riley, influenced me. the old Herbert Warren wind, just the elegance mm-hmm. the um the sense of place he always captured mm-hmm. the gracefulness of his prose mm-hmm. uh, I I don't think that my writing style is similar to him but it 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 there's just something about there was a regalness to his his stories that that some of some of it doesn't doesn't hold up but the, the overall feeling he captures is timeless and so I think that's affected me. How, how, how have those guys uh, influenced you?
1: Well, I very, very similarly. Uh, I don't have any of Riley's, uh, quick hit wit, uh, uh, but I very much, uh, so, and I don't try to, and it, it would be forced if, if I did, but, uh, but I, I totally agree with you. and, and people who know Riley know this. He was a tremendous reporter. He always literally had that notebook out. And I, and I heard him many times say very open-ended questions like, tell me your best story about Blank. And like I would never word a question that way. It just wouldn't come naturally to me. I use that all the time. <laughs> I know, it, it's neat. And uh, it's very effective actually. Yeah. It, uh, it sort of really puts the other person on the spot. But Riley, you know, some people have that kind of personality where they're very comfortable uh, doing that. But I think that was something I very, you know, I've always regarded myself really just as a reporter. I'm very comfortable. A word I just, dis- not despise, but I am uncomfortable with is journalist. You yeah. know, it sounds so highfalutin. But I love being called a reporter. And I think all of us do. And I think that's really, uh, that's really the starting point. Uh, now, I wouldn't call Jenkins a, a classic reporter in in that sense at all. But if the art of reporting really is observing things in their natural state, Jenkins was the best. Uh And uh, so I think uh, we've both probably taken on a a lot from that. Um, I think once you ask the question, you know, tell me your best story, you're sort of getting it out of its natural state. You know, to me, like, if you watch a scene of, like, uh, you know, Mrs. Justin Rose consoling Justin Rose afterwards, well, that's a very natural scene. And maybe the photographer's not there and getting it, or maybe you have an insight into it that you can bring to it uh, uniquely. And And then Herb Wind... I mean, there's so much one could say about Herb and his, his style doesn't. It's not a style that would really even play today. It's uh, it's long
0: for one <laughs> thing. You
1: know, it's for people who had a lot of, lot of time.
0: It took him a thousand words to clear his throat. Was right. that the line? Yeah. But
1: he imbued all of his writing with tremendous love of of the subject, and uh, I know you and I both have that. So yes, I feel very much as you do, very much uh, shaped by all our, our our forebears that way, and I feel very much shaped by uh by by the uh, uh nonchalance isn't really the right word that you bring to it but uh just like let the, this is what it's something i've really picked up from you very strongly over years and i let the chips fall where they may i'm going to write it up let if it's truthful it's the, that's the best defense the story can possibly have just let the chips fall where they may and um you know the the other day i was writing about it was it was a quick hit story about uh the Bay Hill tournament the first Bay Hill tournament um after uh, Arnold Palmer died and uh and 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 somewhere I wrote you know it, it was so overblown as uh as Mark Godish, uh all these tributes to Arnold one after another for another as if he was mother Teresa. <laughs> it's going to be a bit much so uh and there's a way to for the for a golfer or for any human being to honor the memory of Arnold That's like just be a nice, decent, kind person, which is basically what he was. But that doesn't mean he was a saint. Well, anyway, so I'm writing it up, and, uh, and I'm trying to convey uh, uh, the sense of the man. I knew Arnold fairly well, and, uh, uh, and I wrote uh, you know, Arnold, blah, 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 and he was a sexist. Well, it's not a very powerful statement, it's a statement I know to be true, it's very common in that time and place, but anyway. So someone from Golf Channel said to me the other day. Said, "I was really struck by uh, that uh, that story they wrote about uh, you know the Bay Hill preview story. And uh, when you called Arnold, the sexist. It's true, but I've never seen anybody write it in print before." I said, "Well, why not? It's the truth. I mean, it's it's supported by actual reporting. So uh, uh, I think that's something that that I picked up uh, from you. Just just write it and uh, don't sugarcoat it. And um, that's what we serve." Our readers best, and uh, it, I, this next bar i 've had all my reporting life going back to high school, so our ultimate bosses, this is so obvious to say, but sometimes people can lose sight of it, are our readers we 're writing for our readers we 're not writing to uh, ingratiate ourselves with our subjects or uh, you know impress people in high places we 're writing for our very broad readership. Um, which does let me, if I may, to a, to a question I was thinking about. When you're writing a game story, as you did for the national edition of Sports Illustrated, you have a lot of people with only casual interest in golf. Um, do you find yourself writing in a different tone because you know they may not have the golfing sophistication that our golf.com readers might have, for instance?
0: Yeah, not, um, not the tone of the story, but you, you do have to offer more backstory. So if I was writing, Sergio wins the Masters for Golf. dot com, there was certain things I would just know the readers were tuned into. Whereas for 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 the as you say for the general Sports Illustrated readership, you have to give a little more background, jog their memory about some of these things that happened in Sergio's past and his career. Um, so I, it's more I think it's more adding a few more supporting details just so you know the reader's keeping up with you, but. I think it's it's the same the same voice and I, I think it's the same story. It it's just building a few bridges for the reader so that they can they can come along with you. And mm-hmm. that's really the only difference. Mm-hmm. Alan, unfortunately I've got to get on plane pretty soon here, but l- let me
1: ask you a question <laughs> that I'm I'd be interested <laughs> yes. to know the answer to and I know that listeners would be too. Uh and I'll just a quick preamble, I'll give you a little bit of my own feeling, but then you take it from there. I feel like Tiger has been very maligned in the popular press as someone who is was uh, surly and mean-spirited with the press and uh, uncooperative. I feel like from the time, going back to his amateur days and right through the hydrant thing, Tiger stood there and answered questions blandly, day after day after day. But you asked him a factual question and he stood there and he answered it. He didn't blow us off. And I uh, and I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for Tiger Woods as an athlete, and I've always felt, you know, this is just a minor little uh, part of it, but I always thought it was just so unfair that he was so criticized for being so, quote, uncooperative. I just think he may not be the most interesting or introspective person in the world, but he did his job. That was just my own feeling, but I'm wondering if you felt differently and... uh, uh, you
0: take it from there. I did have, and I should point out that, again, you've asked all the questions. You made me do most of the talking here. It's supposed to be the other way around, Michael. You've done it again. You've done it again. I thought this was
1: the Michael Berenberger podcast. <laughs> Excuse me, I was, misin- <laughs> I was misinformed.
0: <laughs> it's amazing how you do it. Um, but, yeah, I do give Tiger tremendous credit for always showing up. You know, And this I have had this back and forth a handful of times now. Whether it's on social media or, or some other venue, part of being a pro athlete is talking to the press. It's just like you sign your scorecard and you answer questions. That's just part of the job. That's, that's just like tying your shoes before you're round, and not, not everyone agrees with me, but that, you know they get paid to promote the game. No, a lot of these guys um, think that just just giving their performance is enough. All I have to do is shoot 65 and that's enough. But it's really not. I mean, the PJ Tour exists only to entertain the fans. Otherwise, there's no other reason to have it. And we are the bridge between the players and the fans. We represent the fans. And so, yeah, Tiger was – he took it – he was a pro. He, he just – he didn't want to do it a lot of times, but he did it. And so I give him credit for that. I, I think where the criticism has come is that he only did what he had to do. It was mm-hmm. the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And if you compare it to a Palmer or a Nicholas who, who – made legitimate friendships with writers, welcomed them into their lives, into their offices, their homes, their private jets, um, really got to let the writers get to know them as, in a much more profound way. That's where I think Tiger has fallen short. Now, it's, it's arguable whether or not that's his res- responsibility or his role, but I think that the criticism is that it, 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 it was so shallow what his his participation and therefore, the profiles of him could, could never be that deep. We could never get to know him. that that inner you know he his his inner self was guarded like a fortress and we really didn't know him. That was made clear on Thanksgiving of 2009 and so um, you know I guess he had a reason for protecting his life and his privacy. But um, I, I do I you know. Like Phil Mickelson, there's plenty of times when he shoots 75, he just kind of scoots out the back door and doesn't talk to anybody, and it kind of goes uncommented upon. You know, Rory has has started um, down that road a little bit. So the fact that Tiger always answered the questions is, it, to me, is is an underrated part of who he was as a public person. I
1: think that's very well said. Who who do you regard as the the most introspective, interesting uh, subject in golf today? A guy that you can you can get to and and get an insight into, into something.
0: Well, Rory is, it, and Jordan Spieth are the same. They're both super smart, very insightful, uh, very analytical. They're great interviews. It, it's hard to get them away from the setting of a press conference. You, you might get lucky and get a podcast once a year, and that, that's appreciated. But the people around them don't really understand journalism, long form journalism they don't see the value in in letting writers write and so it, it's tough to get to get what you want i mean I, i've been trying to do big stories on both of them for a long time you, you can you can nibble around the edges but um you know they're, they're both at the top of my wish list to really spend some time with and, mm-hmm. and write a, an old school long si style piece I, I think both of them are utterly fascinating but they're um they're they've they've the modern athlete now doesn't really see the value in that. They they feel like they can connect through social media, through their ad campaigns, and they don't need someone else to tell their story. I would argue that, that what, what they put out there is always a little sanitized. It's always a little inauthentic, even mm-hmm. though they don't, they don't see that. But, um, and our job is to go deeper and, and be more insightful and whether we'll ever get a chance to do that, who knows, you know, with those two guys, um, you know, there's 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 guys on tour who I, I love talking to, whether it's Pudrick Harrington or it's Jeff Ogilvy, um, I mean there's there's a bunch of guys who Jim Mackay. Jim McKay, yeah, Bones. There's plenty of guys who um, will give you the time and, and they're really smart and you can talk to them for hours, but they're not they're not at the height of the game. And so I don't know if anyone wants a ten page Pudrick Harrington profile. I mean, I'm sure I could go to Ireland right now and do it and it'd be fascinating, but um, well, you were up, Kevin Na Pat Perez uh, for the main
1: magazine. So, if anybody can can make these people interesting, it is you.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that, Michael. All right, I'm going to let you All go. All right, Alan,
1: it's been a pleasure, a lot of fun as always. Another great week. Collectively, we've probably spent you know half a year and one half year of you know your mid-40 years here in Augusta, Georgia, in this 604 Medina Drive house. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know whether to to, to celebrate whole... that or to, to cry about it. But... I like
1: it. There are whole rooms in this house after 20 years I've never been in.
0: <laughs> yeah. But you should know this as listeners, that every house in Augusta is like eight bedrooms and eight bathrooms. They build them huge so they can rent them out during Master's Week. And they have all these little <laughs> parlor rooms and libraries and... You, I mean there's there's the book we wrote together, The Swinger, there's a moment where they're in Augusta and, and and the, our protagonist goes to pull a book off the shelf, and like a row of ten of them come down. They're all glued together. They're just they're just fake facades. That was pulled directly from our own experience here in Augusta. That is a great moment in the book. Yeah, I'm glad you
1: brought up the swinger. I think it's very important uh, in, in the history of golf writer collaborations. That's got to be in the top
0: hundred. It's yes. Yeah, there's there's Jones and Keeler. There's Bamberger <laughs> and Shipnuck, and I think other than that, it's a short list. So,
1: Alan, thank you very
0: much. Michael, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the listeners out there. uh, We are signing off from Augusta, Georgia. Please stand by for another podcast next week.